Well, um, we've been in the Gospel of Luke this semester, and tonight we start what is the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life on earth. Interesting thing about all the Gospels, if you take all the Gospels by word count or content, um, over a third of the entirety of all four Gospels, all put together, is spent on the last week of Jesus' life. We're going to spend three weeks on it. Um, so it's important. We're going to look tonight at his entry into Jerusalem. Next week we'll look at his death. Uh, and then we're going to end the semester looking at the resurrection. So hope you'll be here for that. If you would, um, it takes up your whole page there in your handout. But that's just because it's bigger font this week. It's actually a much smaller passage than we've done in the past uh, few weeks. So let's read here Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way to the Mount of Olives, down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers." he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Don't know how many of you read the Harry Potter books or watched the movies. I enjoyed both thoroughly. Um... And I'll never forget both the movie and the book did this really well, uh, the book for me first, was the feeling at the end, right, the end of the series, there's just great relief, right? The triumph over evil, namely uh, he who must not be named, Voldemort himself, 
has been vanquished. And there's this great sense of relief for all the characters and kind of the whole world that you're reading about. And there's a great sense of relief uh, for you as the reader too. Like you've finally gotten it. Um, it's really a triumphal ending of a book. And it, and it resonates with people. We like happy endings. We, we, we feel deep down that things are supposed to work out. There's supposed to be a champion in the end, right? But the reality of the Harry Potter world and story and, and what, why I think it makes it such a good story is at the exact same time of the height of triumph is the reality of tragedy all around. If you remember in the movies, Hogwarts lays in ruins, right? Um, many characters that we have come to love throughout the story have given their lives uh, in the fight against evil. And the tragedy of the situation is real. It's palpable. I mean, it feels like the real world, except for the wands and the brooms and stuff like that, right? Um, but it feels so real that even though there's triumph, it's not just sunny days and rainbows ahead. There's scars to be dealt with. That pun not intended. Um, but there's real scars to be. I kind of liken it personally to being a Mississippi State fan. There's the triumph of being undefeated in football and number one in the nation for the first time ever. But there's the tragedy of knowing we're going to lose in a week at Alabama. There I said um, So maybe not so resonating with you there. We've been asking the question, Dr. Who, this semester. Asking the Dr. Luke who wrote this gospel to tell us more about this Jesus. And tonight, we've looked at it before, we've seen it before, but tonight Luke wants to be very clear. Jesus wants to be very clear. The crowds are very clear. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. And if he's the king, it changes everything. And if he's the king, you really only have two choices with him. You will either crown him as king or you will crucify him as a liar. Those are really the only two choices that we have. And as we read the story tonight, what we see is that there is some real triumph going on and Jesus finally letting everybody in. Yes, I am him. I am the king. But at the same time, tragedy looms. We know it's coming. We see Jesus' tears here over the city of Jerusalem, right? So I want to look at both of those things tonight. The reality of triumph and the reality of tragedy. So the first one is triumph. As we look at what, uh, if you read this account, Matthew, Mark, and Luke include the story of Jesus coming to Jerusalem for his last week of his life. He knows it's the last week of his life. He gets on this colt of a donkey, this young donkey, and he rides in. It's a weird scene, right? He rides down, um, down from the Mount of Olives and up into the city of Jerusalem, right? And what are we going to do with that? It's Passover week. Uh, pilgrims from all over the place. Thousands of people are flocking to Jerusalem. There would have been tons of people on the road that would have seen uh, what was going on. And they get it. Jesus is on this colt and they know exactly what it means. And in the other gospels we're told that all the crowds lay their cloaks down. They even get palm branches and cover the road as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. It's triumphal. And they scream out, this is it. This is him. He's coming. He's about to sit on the throne. And he's about to kick everybody's tail. So they thought. And Jesus, for the first time, completely okay with it, saying, yes, I'm the king and I'm here. Okay, there's three ways that this is triumphal. Three ways that this is triumphal. And the first way that it's triumphal, his entry here into the last week of the life, his life, is that it is 
completely clear. If you read all the accounts in the Gospels, he is completely in control. Jesus is completely in control. He knows what's about to happen. He knows the details of how he's going to get there. He is in complete control. If you read through uh, from this until his crucifixion, you'll see all the, the reason that uh, the gospel writers give so much attention to the last week of Jesus' life is because he's dealing with people one-on-one, especially the Pharisees, and the gloves are off. They keep trying to trap him, and he keeps calling them out. And he says, you know who I am. You know why I'm here. If you want to kill me, just kill me. The whole week is Jesus saying, you have two options with me. Crown me or kill me. The only thing you cannot do with me is be indifferent. Jesus is completely in control. And we're we're keyed into that fact by the way he tells, go into Bethany, get this colt. If anybody asks, then just tell them the Lord needs it and they'll let you have it. And it's kind of weird because we're like... How did he do that? Just because he's Jesus. Well, he'd been to Bethany before, so he very well could have, um, he could have set it up earlier. We don't really know. But what we do know is that whatever the deal is, Jesus knows exactly how it's supposed to unfold, and it unfolds exactly the way he tells him it would. He knows what's going on. He's totally in control. So what this tells us, one, he knows the people are going to think he's a king. Right? There's a lot of people that look at the New Testament and say, well, actually, the Jesus, the real Jesus of Nazareth, never claimed to be king. It's his disciples that wrote that into the story later. If you say that, you have to take a very key passage, this one right here, out of three Gospels. Three different Gospel writers say that Jesus got on a colt of a donkey and rode into Jerusalem while people hailed him as the new king. The Gospel writers present that to you as a fact of history. He's in control. What does this tell us? This is what I think this tells us. This is what I think we need to hear from this. Jesus knew exactly what he was getting into. This was not a mob, like the mob just all of a sudden decided, hey, we're going to make this Jesus guy king. Mm -mm. Jesus is finally ready to let them in on it. He's finally ready to say, yeah, I am the king. What are you going to do about it? Also, we'll see that his death is not just the mob sweeping him up and taking him to death. He's in complete control. He knows why he's going into Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem to die. Jesus knew what he was getting into. And why I think that's telling for us why we need to hear that and listen to it and think about it is this. When Jesus pursues you, when Jesus calls you, when Jesus makes you his own, he knows what he's getting into. I think all of us struggle with this sense of, I just don't know if Jesus can deal with my baggage, right? I don't know if Jesus can deal with the real me. Please hear this. Jesus knows what he's getting into when he comes after you. He knows every bit of it. And that's why he came down. Because he knows. And because he wants to know. And the crowd immediately recognizes the significance of everything, of this kingly entry. He's everything they've hoped and longed for. But here's the ironic thing. By the end of the week, they will all be yelling one thing in unison. Crucify him. We're done. We give him a week. He's not what we want. Crucify him. And here's the thing. The complete turn from him, them hailing him as king to them yelling to him as, to, to, them yelling to crucify him. It all happens because he's in control. He is. And the question for us 
These people needed to ask it for themselves, and we got to ask it for ourselves. Are we just along for the ride in hopes that Jesus will fulfill our desires, our longings, our hopes? Or do we follow him because he's king? Because if he's king, he's in control, and he knows what he's getting into. And you can either do thing, two things with that, crown him or kill him. The second thing is this. It's triumphal, not only because he's in control, it's triumphal because it was foretold. The gospels that, the three gospels that record this, uh, they, all of them talk about him sending the disciples forward to get the colt and then bringing this colt of a donkey back for him to ride on. And Matthew explicitly tells us this is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9 verse 9. Listen to it here. This is hundreds of years before Jesus. The, the prophet writes this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. The foal of a donkey. Jesus, what he does here, it's triumphal because it was foretold. This is, this is the only point I want to make with this. Over and over and over again throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus' relentless and repeated effort to fulfill the Scriptures. Over and over and over again. His temptation, how does he deal with his temptation? It is written. On his way to the cross, what do we find him doing? Quoting Scripture. While he's on the cross, what do we find him doing? Quoting Scripture. Jesus' life was shaped and defined by total confidence in the word of his Father. And that's how he viewed it. He viewed it as the word of his Father. How did Jesus know? I love thinking about this and asking this question. How did Jesus know he was the Son of God? I think there's multiple ways. I think his mom told him because the angel told his mom. Um, And he had the Spirit. But one of the more tangible ways that he knew was God the Father audibly spoke to him twice. At his baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration. We looked at both of them. And at both of those, God says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus cherished the word of his Father because it reminded him he was a son. All that happens during this week is triumphal because Jesus knows that what he faces, as dawning as it is, is according to the word of his Father. And he's in complete submission to it. And Jesus cannot live without it. And the implication for us is this. You cannot have this King Jesus without the word of his Father. You have to have his word. You cannot have him without his word. The third thing about how this is triumphal, he's in control, it was foretold, it was written. The final thing why it's triumphal is because he's bringing it. He's bringing it, right? Um, Bringing it's a good thing. Um, What is it? Well, look at verse 30. Verse 30, Jesus makes a point to say that no one has ever ridden on this colt. Well, what would that be telling us? Well, first thing, it can tell us a bunch of things, but just two things. First thing it says, a colt never ridden on would have been young, okay? It would have not been full-grown nor, nor, nor uh, wouldn't have been full-grown or near full-grown. What is Jesus doing? This is a fully-grown man riding in on like a Shetland pony, y'all. He's riding in on a beast of burden, yes, but a beast of burden fit for a kid's carnival. That's what he wants to ride in on. 
What is he doing? He's preempting the crowd's expectations of a warrior king. They're elated because they think he's about to go into Jerusalem and clean house. And he says, no, nah, I'll take a young donkey. That'll do. By the way, the same animal his mother rode, right? Um, pregnant. He doesn't come on a war horse, but an animal foot for a toddler to ride. What is he pointing to? He's, coming, he's pointing to this. I come to make peace and not war. I come to save and not condemn. I come to reconcile and not divide at this point. At this point, I come suffering, I come serving, I come humble, and I come gentle and weak. And if you cannot accept me as such, then I am not your king. Crown me or kill me. The second thing, though, think about the never been ridden part. What happens when you get on an animal that's never been ridden? It probably is not very comfortable with that. This is a fully grown man, y'all, on little, little, little donkey. Okay? Um, I'm starting to think of Shrek in my head. That's funny. Um, I'm donkey. What is this? And, and, and so he gets on this never been ridden young animal. Okay? And not only is he riding up into Jerusalem, but he's riding through a crowd. And Luke doesn't tell us, but the other gospels tell us they're even laying branches down, right? My dog jumps to the other side of the street when I pass a pile of brush, okay? This little donkey makes the ride. From, from what we can see, it's a peaceful ride. The whole picture here points us to the number one thing that Jesus is bringing. Peace with God. That's what he's trying to get across. I'm bringing peace. And it's a foretaste of the complete healing of all of nature and creation under the future kingship of Jesus. Look at verse 40. I love this little, this is a detail that only Luke includes. When the Pharisees are like, like Jesus, they're calling you king. You need to squash that. He says, if they didn't say it, the stones on the road would say it. Right? It's a fulfillment of Isaiah 11 that's being fulfilled before their very eyes. That the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. That is what he's bringing And what he's trying to get across is, this is what I'm bringing into the lives of my people. Because I'm the king and I'm bringing it. I'm bringing peace. I come in meekness and gentleness. This is it, y'all. This king is about peace and rest. Peace and rest. And it's at least worth asking, what is your king giving you? Whether it's Jesus or whatever else you bow to down to in this life. Is it giving you peace and rest? Because what the Bible tells us is Jesus is the only one that can do it. And he says that's precisely what I've brought. And if you... If that's something that is completely elusive to you. And like so even like not even... You can't even understand the category of peace and rest. You need to look a little harder for this Jesus. Because he's the one that says, come all who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He brings peace and that's a triumph. 
But here's the thing. There's a reality of triumph with this Jesus. And we're going to keep looking at it in the next two weeks. Even in his death, there's a reality of triumph. In his resurrection, of course, there's a reality of triumph. Right here, there's reality of triumph. The king has arrived. But at the same time, there's a reality of tragedy. Tragedy is looming. And tragedy, as Luke tells us, is here. Okay, And so we see the tragedy of this uh, story and how it's taking shape in two things here. His tears and the temple. Luke tells us about Jesus' tears and what Jesus did in the temple. And through that we see the reality of tragedy. And the interesting part that Luke includes that others don't is right there, verses 41 through 44. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he begins to weep. It's a triumphal entry, y'all. He's the king, and they're actually shouting out, you are the king. And he begins to weep. And he says, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. Jesus comes riding in on the symbol of peace, but he rightly perceives that the crowds really had no clue who he was. And he was, and because of it, he weeps for the city that he knows is going to reject him. And he knows that they will die because of it. He weeps. How do we understand that? Well, we have to understand it in conjunction with what happens at the temple. What happens at the temple is integral in helping us understand this whole episode. Okay, and Luke is, for some reason, the sparsest of the details of the three Gospels uh, that tell us about this. But he says that Jesus goes straight into the temple and begins to drive out those who sold. To give you kind of the force of what Luke is saying, Luke has used that same word drive out to talk about Jesus casting out demons. Okay? He goes into the temple and begins casting people out. In one gospel, we're actually told he made a whip of cords to physically drive people out. He's turning over tables, other gospels tell us. Okay? The temple... Got to understand the significance of the temple. I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. Just follow me. The temple was the crown of Jerusalem. Okay? Mount Zion, the holy city. The temple, the building, was the crown of that city. That city which also crowned a hill. It was the heart of the faith of the people of Israel. It's the center and symbol of Jewish religion. Jesus busts up in that and he starts throwing things around. Feel the force of that. What do you do when Jesus, when this king comes into your life, starts throwing stuff around? Because the implication is, is that if he is the king, and if he's going to come into your life, he's going to start throwing stuff around. He is. Not only that, the temple, as I said, the temple was the heart of the Jewish religion. And this is why, because it was the physical place on earth where God had promised to meet with his people. Throughout the Bible, the temple holds this huge significance because God said, that is the place, the physical location where I'm going to come down on this earth and you can meet with me there. Okay? It's important. God thinks it's important. And Jesus is actually quoting uh, Isaiah 56, 7 there, right there, in the, where the prophet, well, God through the prophet Isaiah says, my house will be a house of prayer to all the peoples. This is not a New Testament phenomenon. The prophets say it over and over again. God was intent on meeting the people of the whole world 
And the temple in the Old Testament was supposed to be that place. And the outer courts were actually called the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't go any further into the temple, but they could come to the outer courts. And the purpose of the outer courts was for Gentiles to come in and to be able to pray to God. And what Jesus finds there... It's not so much the selling of sacrifices. That would have been an economic necessity because people are traveling from all over to come and make sacrifice. So that would have needed to happen. The problem is all the worship of God had become in this temple was a simple transaction. Get in, get out, and you're done. And Jesus says this isn't a place of business. This is a place to commune with God himself. He's condemning false worship. What are we going to do when Jesus exposes our thinking, our disposition, that we can come into God and just pull it like a slot machine and get out when we're done? Also, final thing here about the temple. The temple had long stood for the unshakable promise of God to keep Israel safe. Throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel said the political climate would change and they would think somebody's coming to get them. But they would look over at the top of the hill, the top of the city, and they'd say, there's the temple. We're fine. This is what God says to them through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7.4. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He goes on to say, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? This was the first temple, y'all. The one that was completely laid to dust. The temple had become a bedrock of false assurance. And what the people were going to have to deal with was this. What are you going to do When Jesus rips out all the things that you have been leaning on for assurance. What are you going to do when Jesus tears down your idols? What is it going to happen? And this is what I want to close with. This is why I say all this. Jesus' tears and Jesus' temple tell us two things. This is it. This is the whole thing. Jesus is our problem. And Jesus deals with our problem. Let me make sense of this. Jesus is our problem. Jesus deals with our problem. Last week, this is the last week of Jesus' life. And it's going to be the death of Jesus. It's often referred to his pa- as his passion. Um, have you all ever heard it called that? Uh, this last week of his life and his death is called Jesus' passion. That's why Mel Gibson's movie was called The Passion of the Christ. It comes from the Latin word uh, for suffering. So passion week refers to the suffering that Jesus endured on the way to the cross. And his passion was death by crucifixion. But we also use the word as ardent affection, right? And we can use it here too because we see in Jesus' tears his ardent affection for the lost people of Jerusalem. And we see his ardent zeal for the house of God. Here's the problem with Jesus. He is a perfect, perfect, perfectly passionate person. This is the problem with Jesus. He is a perfectly passionate person. That poses a problem for us. He's not weepy or sentimental. But he did cry about the things that broke his heart. Here we see him crying over those who would reject him, even though he's right in front of them. We see him at the grave of his best friend, Lazarus, 
Lazarus weeping at death and what it does in the world. Does our heart break for the things that Jesus' heart broke for? Jesus exposes that in us. He's also perfectly passionate. He's not moody or bad-tempered, but he is outright angry time and again at outright hypocrisy and injustice. Are we angry (laughs) with our own hypocrisy and the injustice that surrounds us against so many different people? Imagine a quaint little church and the preacher just all of a sudden turning over pews and throwing hymn books to get a point across. That's what Jesus is doing, and he does it without sin. How do we make sense of that? What are you going to do with this Jesus who is totally in control, totally submissive to the word of his Father, brings peace to all people, yet exposes us for the sinners that we are? That's why Jesus is a problem. He exposes. How are we supposed to draw near to the guy that exposes us as hypocrites, exposes us as false worshipers, exposes us as those who really don't care that much about injustice? Let's be honest, unless it affects us. He was the one of infinite majesty, yet he had complete humility. What are you going to do with that? He was the one of perfect justice, yet boundless grace for some of the worst of sinners. What are you going to do with that? He was one who had absolute sovereignty, yet he is utterly submissive to the word of his father. He is all sufficient in and of himself, yet he's entirely trusting and dependent on the will of God. What are you going to do with that? And here's the, what's the result of his extreme character? It's not a mental or emotional breakdown. He actually has a perfectly beautiful personality. He's complete. What do you do with the one that because you sinned against him, you deserve death? Yet because of his free love for you, you're extended free grace and mercy. You only have two options. You can either crown him or kill him. The thing about this king is you cannot be indifferent. You can't just say he's a likable guy. You can't. It's a problem with Jesus. We have to make sense of that. But here, finally, though, Jesus deals with our problem. And again, quickly, the temple. Think about the temple again. Swelling with significance here. The temple goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible itself, the Garden of Eden in Genesis. The Garden of Eden was paradise because it was a sanctuary where the presence of the Creator, God Himself, dwelled in union and communion with man. Okay? Um, It was truly paradise because death and sin and evil could not coexist with God's presence. But we know the story. Paradise was lost as man chose to follow his own will instead of God's. And so man is cast out from that sanctuary. And if you remember in Genesis 3, as they're cast out, what God sets at the entrance to the garden, the entrance to this paradise, therefore the entrance to his presence, a flaming sword. It's a really weird picture. A flaming sword. And so now the way back to God is barred by the flaming sword of the justice of God. You cannot get back into the presence of God unless you go under the sword. And the problem with the sword is that you cannot survive it. It bars our way back into the presence of God unless 
The sin that barred us is paid for. From that moment forward in history, the question always remained, how will we as the people of God get back into the presence of God? There was the law, there was the sacrificial system, there was the priests, there was the prophets, there was the kings. But all of them were glaringly incomplete because no one of them could usher the people as a whole back into the presence of God. Actually, one time a year, one guy got to go into the presence of God, the holies of holies, in the temple. The high priest, only once a year did he get to go into the presence of God. And all that that clues us into is that the way to God was still barred. But here's the thing. The solution was there the whole time. They didn't see it. The prophet Isaiah, seven, eight hundred years before Jesus, writes this. In Isaiah 53, verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And he was cut off from the land of the living. Here it is. There's this amazing scene in Revelation 5. Where John is seeing the throne room of God and he sees the scrolls. And he begins to weep because he's told that there's no one worthy Uh, To open the scrolls. But then an angel comes and says this. Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered. So that he can open the scroll. And it's seven seals. And so John turns around to see this lion. He turns around to see this king. Do you remember what he sees? A lamb standing as though it had been slain. You see why that's so amazing, right? Because the death of Jesus, the greatest tragedy the world has ever seen, is the greatest royal triumph of all history and eternity. Jesus went under the sword and it broke him. (laughs) But here's the beautiful part. It broke itself as well. Jesus took the sword for you and me. That's why at the moment Jesus died, we're told that the veil in the temple that separated everything else from the Holy of Holies was torn in two. Because the sword wasn't nullified, it was satisfied so that now all have access to the presence of God. The flaming sword claimed its victim, the veil was parted, and the way back into the garden was permanently reopened. What are you going to do with this king? No better illustration, and it's like one worn out by campus ministers everywhere, but I love it. Chronicles of Narnia, the Pevensey children are with the beavers, and they finally put two and two two together that this Aslan they keep hearing about isn't a man. And here's how it goes. Aslan, a man said Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That's a will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. 
Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who would say anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Here it is. What are you going to do with the one that wields the flaming sword of God's justice himself, yet submitted himself to it on your behalf? You only have two options. Crown him or kill him. But you can't ignore him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, our King, the one who is in control, the one by whose word we are healed. Father, the one who comes to heal all the diseases of our souls, but more than all of it, the one who came to give us peace with you by taking the sword of justice himself on himself, dying the death that we deserved, that we might live for you. We pray that we'd hear that and see that tonight. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.